You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church family. Hope you guys are doing well. For those of you that don't know me, my name is John Hall. I am uh, one of the elders here at Citizens Church, and it is a privilege and an honor to be here with you this morning to get to open up God's Word, to be able to take a look at it and see what it has to say uh, on this beautiful day. And it is hard to believe, but Thanksgiving has come and gone. I hope all of you had a great Thanksgiving, got to enjoy it with family and friends. I don't know about you, but I ate more than I should have. And uh, in a light of that, I, as I look back and realize how God has been so good to me and my family, I've certainly been be- blessed with great and beautiful things, uh, much more than I deserve. But as we leave Thanksgiving behind, we head into the Christmas season. Yes, that's upon us. There are a whole range of emotions and feelings that people will experience during this time. And so on one end of the spectrum, there are those people who love Christmas, and they are all about this season. I mean, as soon as Thanksgiving was over, they cranked up the Christmas music, the Christmas tree went up, they hung stockings, they kicked back with a pumpkin latte. And for you guys, I just want to say to you, we love you. We're praying for you, and we're probably going to avoid you over the next month. But then there's, in all seriousness, the other end of that spectrum, where this time of year is a reminder of everything that has been lost and even mourned. It is a reminder of people that are no longer around, and possibly the mourning of the way things used to be. And rather than a magical time to enjoy, it becomes a cause of a great deal of pain, anxiety, stress, and possibly even depression. And for you, I want you to know that we're concerned and that we care about you. And if what you're going through is too much for you, please, please, please don't do this alone. Please reach out to someone here at Citizens. We love you. We care for you. We don't want you to go through this alone. My email is john, J-O-H-N, at citizenschurch.com. And if you need to reach out to someone, please reach out to me. So with all of that said, we're at that juncture in the year, ready or not, the Christmas season is here and at Citizens, that means that we together celebrate Advent. And so if you've been a part of the Village Church and now Citizens Church for any length of time, then our recognition and celebration of Advent is not new to you. In fact, this is the eighth year that we've been able to celebrate Advent together here in Plano. And so we do this for a very specific reason. We want you, Citizens Church, to orient your hearts around the one true story, the gospel. So in a season, and specifically in a year, when the possibility exists that your heart can be blinded to a number of lies and false narratives, we want to push you to pursue King Jesus in the hope that you would see him for who he really is, the way, the truth, and the life. So the word Advent is taken from Latin. It actually means an appearing, and it refers specifically to the appearances of Jesus Christ. One of those appearances is one that has passed to us. This is the one that we celebrate at Christmas. And so we celebrate that he appeared to save his people from their sins. But the other appearance is still future to us. There will be a day when he appears for a second time, and in which he will set everything straight for all eternity, and we will be with him for all eternity. Praise God for all of that. So this means that we are a people that live between the first and the second advents of Jesus. In effect, this makes us a waiting people. And in the waiting, what we hope in and hold on to are the promises of God. In order to access hope, we have to hold on to promise. And so as we think through accessing hope by holding on to the promises of God, let's start here. Take a look at what a theologian named Will Willimon had to say. 
Our lives are eschatologically stretched between the sneak preview of the new world being born among us in the church and the old world where the principalities and the powers are reluctant to give way. In the meantime, which is the only time the church has ever known, we live as those who know something about the fate of the world that the world does not yet know, and that makes us different. See, in celebrating Advent, we want to push you to this biblical certainty that we are a people that live in between the two, two realities of the first and second appearances of Jesus. Our lives are marked by a hope in the faithfulness of God. What he has promised, he will deliver. Even as we live in a world full of trouble, trial, and pain where the principalities and powers are reluctant to give way, we still believe and hold on to the promise that there will be a day in eternity where none of those things will exist. Knowing this truth, living in light of this truth, and holding on to the promise that all of this is true makes us different. Over the course of the next few Sundays, we will be looking at some of the promises of God as we celebrate this Advent season together. We will explore how God has promised us enough, namely himself. And while we live and wait in between these two realities, that he's already been here and that he will come again, we can hold on to this promise. In his faithfulness, he made a way for us to be made right with God so that we could have a standing of righteousness before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and so that we could be with him forever as heirs to his kingdom. So this morning, we're going to explore one of the promises of God surrounding Advent. The promise that he would be with us, that he would be present. As Matthew one twenty three says, he would be Emmanuel. And in promising this, God has revealed several things about who he is, about who we are in light of who he is, and about something about the nature of the way God chooses to pursue and to relate to us. So here are some of my hopes for this sermon. What we need from time to time is a reminder about how, things that we already know. This is my hope for this sermon, that maybe there will be things that are new to you. The vast majority of this sermon, though, is not about introducing new theology, but reminding you of things you know already to be true. It's about orienting your heart around the one true story, the gospel. The problem is that our hearts are not always in tune with the truth of the gospel and what Jesus has afforded us. So in a season like Christmas, if we pay close enough attention, our hearts will out us. They will show us the error of our ways, namely what we perceive to be true, and therefore what we believe about God are not always in line with the truth of Scripture. So this reminds me of something about my kids that I think has been most parents' experience. So my wife and I, Laurie, we have five children, all boys, and so when we had our oldest, he began to sleep through the night at six weeks old, and we thought we were the greatest parents ever. I mean, we thought, I don't know what people are talking about. This isn't difficult. You just lay them down, they go to sleep. This is awesome. And then we had our second child, and God humbled us in an awesome way. And that kid didn't sleep through the night until he was like four years old. And so from that point forward, we had this struggle where you put your kids to bed, and then the kids get out of bed, and they try to figure out a way to get into bed with mom and dad. And so we would uh, we'd have this constant thing going on. And so our kids, uh, they had different methods, they had different approaches to try to make that work, but... All of them tried at some point to get out of bed, come to bed with mom and dad. So we had one. I'm not going to mention any names because I'm going to protect the not-so-innocent in this. But this would be his approach. He would come down in the middle of the night. He would stand at the side of the bed, and he would just get down and get right in your face. <laughs> not say a word, not do anything. And then as you're laying there asleep and you just have this sense that somebody's watching you, and you open one eye, and there's a face right there. 
That's not what you want to see in the middle of the night. And so it's amazing that he survived that process. But anyway, I'd be like, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you just standing there staring at me? And he's like, I was hoping you would wake up. And it's like, well, now I'm awake. You have my attention. And so he's like, hey, Dad, I just want to let you know, I think there's a monster under my bed. Could be in the closet by now. But anyway, there's a monster down there. I think it'd be best if I slept with you and Mom tonight. And so at this point, I have to determine what I value most. Do I value being a good parent? Because a good parent would get out of bed, walk them down there, show them there is nothing under their bed, put them back in bed, and hope they would go to sleep. Or do I value sleep? And a lot of nights, I was tempted to value sleep. And so he would climb over me as he climbed into bed, foot on my head, get over there. And if I wasn't awake already, once he got under the covers, he would stick his freezing cold feet on my legs, and then I was wide awake. And just like a child who knows everything will be all right as long as I'm with mom and dad, we too long for the protection and assurance that comes with being in the presence of our Heavenly Father. And if we're honest and can for a moment be objective about our lives and the condition of our hearts, we are a lot like a child running to a parent with all kinds of irrational fears. And yet God reminds us, I'm with you always. I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. So this sermon is about answering this question. Why was the promise of God's presence so significant in the first advent? Why was Emmanuel so necessary? This sermon is about chasing down a biblical answer or response to that question. This is going to take us several places. And the Bible is not shy about revealing to us that this is God's end goal. The establishment of his eternal kingdom and eternal reign includes a people to be present with him for all eternity. And the hope for this sermon is that it achieves both the recognition of God's intent in promising his presence and that his love compels you to surrender to what God has afforded you in the gospel. So let's take a look and what scripture has to offer this morning. So I want to simply lay a biblical foundation for the reason that God's presence, his Emmanuel, his being with us is so significant in the Bible. And if it is that significant in the Bible, then it is an important part of understanding who he is as we follow Jesus and become more like him. So let's know this, there is this consistent and constant use of God's presence in the Bible. This serves as a clue to the significance of God's presence. So let's take a look at a few of these examples. And so the first place I want to begin, I just want to make sure that we understand some truths that Scripture communicates to us about God so we better understand the meaning of His choice to be present with us. One of the things the Bible teaches us about God is that He's transcendent. And so what it means by being transcendent is that God is over all of creation, and He's distinct from it. He's not part of creation. He created it, so He's distinct from the creation. And so there's implications to this. There's three, in fact, that I want to point out to you. One is that God is sovereign over all creation means that he majestically rules over all of creation for all of eternity so that's the first thing the second thing is this that there is no deficiency in God there is nothing in creation that satisfies a need of God God does not come to creation in a needy and wanting fashion in other words God does not relate to creation because there is something lacking within himself so that's the second thing the third thing is this that God draws near to creation becomes present in creation out of an abundance of who he is. God is present with mankind and within history because of his divine nature and his loving character. So with all of that said, as we look to Scripture to understand the significance of God's presence, let's take a look at the big picture. The Bible begins and it ends with the presence of God. It begins in a garden sanctuary called Eden where mankind communes with God in sinless perfection. 
It is a place where mankind has his every need met and his deepest joy is fulfilled in his relationship with God and also in the relationship that Adam and Eve had with each other, a relationship that had none of the cumbering entanglements of sin. And then as mankind commits treason against the Most High, God removes mankind from the garden and the relationship that they once enjoyed is irrevocably broken because of mankind's sin. And here's where things should end. Here's where the saying goes that mankind had his chance, blew it. And this should be the end of the story, but praise be to God, it's not. Here's the way that Paul would say it in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, and by the way, if you have a God that is wealthy in anything, you want a God that is wealthy in mercy. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what Paul is summing up in Ephesians 2 is the summary and end result of God's beautiful plan to redeem mankind. Following mankind's sin, God does just that. He enacts his plan to seek and to save the lost, which, oh, by the way, was us. And rather than leaving mankind to his own sinful devices and therefore a destiny with death, God begins to actively participate in history in such a way that would culminate in the advent, the first appearing of his son, Jesus Christ. And in this plan, we have the first inkling of why God's presence is so significant. Because apart from God showing up in history, mankind has no hope, no hope whatsoever. So the Bible would describe Christ's first advent this way. So in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Someday this beautiful reality of God's love will be fully realized in Jesus' second appearing. That will be a moment in history when he returns to earth for a second time to set everything straight. The outcome will be the death of sin and the death of death itself. There will be no more pain, no more tears, no more struggle, and most importantly, it will be a time when God returns us to a paradise sanctuary where he dwells with his people and we will be in his presence for eternity. In essence, the presence of God bookends the Bible. That fact alone should be a clue to the significance of God's presence, but there's way more. So look how many times in scripture that God shows up, that he intervenes in history to do what only he can do. In each instance, his being present his being there makes all the difference. And just to be clear, his, de his declaration of Emmanuel in Matthew chapter 1 is not the first time in the Bible that God made his presence known. This is not just a Christmas Advent idea. God's presence plays a prevalent role throughout all of Scripture. And to see what I'm talking about, let's take a look at a couple of Old Testament examples. Let's start in Genesis with an account of Jacob. I have a passage out of Genesis 32 I want us to read in just a minute. But before we get there, I just want to kind of give you a breakdown, a synopsis of Jacob at this point. Many times in the Old Testament, the individual's name lines up with their actual character. And so Jacob's name means someone who is a cheater, a trickster, a conniver. So if you're here this morning and your name is Jacob, well, you're welcome. 
And seriously, it's a great name. But throughout his life, his, his heart, his issue was that he was a personal wreck who believes he can swindle his way to fulfillment and happiness. And so, yet it is through this individual that God has chosen to enact his plan to redeem mankind. God has made this promise to redeem mankind through the lineage of Jacob, this guy who's a cheater, a swindler, a trickster. Jacob, in effect, is the son of promise. And just to be clear, this is obviously nothing Jacob has done to earn this standing. This is totally 100% God's doing. But just to show you this is the case, Jacob has a litany of less than stellar moments. Take, for example... For example, that he basically stole the birthright from his brother over a bowl of lentil soup. He steals his brother's blessing by tricking his father in his old age. He does this by plotting with his mom to do all these things. Then his mom advises him to run away because his older brother Esau is getting ready to kill him. And so he does run away to his uncle's house. He meets a beautiful girl named Rachel whom he wants to marry. But then the con man gets conned by his father-in-law into marrying Rachel's sister Leah. But eventually, he ends up marrying both sisters and creating a dysfunctional home and eventually running away from his father-in-law back to his home where who knows what he'll meet. And then as he enters his home country, he gets news that his brother Esau is on his way with a small army of men and time has run out. There's no more places to hide. And for the first time, Jacob's life has come full circle and he's out of options. For the first time in Jacob's life, he cannot con his way out of this situation. And then the craziest, most unexpected thing happens. And this is the moment when God shows up and goes WWF on Jacob. And in one night, he completely changes the trajectory of his life. This is in chapter 32 of Genesis, verses 22 through 32. It reads this. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left all alone. And this is where the story takes a strange turn. And then he wasn't alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Ouch. And then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. The name Jacob means cheater. The name Israel means one who strives with both God and man. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, And the word Peniel means face of God, saying, for I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered, meaning I came in contact with God. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip, and therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So what does this mean, big picture-wise? Jacob wanted to be delivered from his circumstances. He just wanted out of that moment in time, that circumstance. But God had bigger things in mind. God shows up and is present in the moment, and this changes everything. He gave Jacob a name change. He gave Jacob a character change. And if you will, he gave Jacob a heart change in that moment. And Jacob goes from being the swindler, the conniver, the cheater, to being the guy who strives and struggles with God. And God is present in the moment to save Jacob from himself 
and looks toward a future day when he would send forth his son into the world, born into a family that lineage comes from the nation of Israel and an Old Testament guy named Jacob. But there's not just Jacob, there's also Moses. And Moses, just to give you a little background on him, because of a policy by the Egyptian government, they were killing the babies of Hebrew males. And so his family wanted to save him, put him in a basket, which was discovered by the daughter of Pharaoh who adopted him. He's educated as an Egyptian, and even though he was actually a Hebrew, and one day Moses goes out and he kills an Egyptian in defense of his Hebrew brothers. Following this event, Moses runs away out of fear and spends 40 years of his life as the most educated shepherd walking the face of the earth. So his character and his heart issue is this. He has resolved to live in fear of being discovered as a murderer. And his solution to his problem is to be his own savior. And how will he save himself? He'll do it this way, by hiding in obscurity and playing the part of a hard-working, lowly shepherd. So he pines away his days, hiding as a noble blue-collar worker. And then one day, he notices a bush that's on fire, and yet the bush is not consumed by the fire. And Moses moves closer to investigate, and this is the moment when God shows up. And is present in Moses' life and confronts Moses' greatest fear and asks Moses to trust that God is enough. And in saving Israel from slavery, he will also save Moses from himself. And in also in saving Israel from slavery, he will also make a way for us to be saved from the bondage and the slavery to sin through his son, Jesus Christ. Here's a small portion of the conversation that God had with Moses at the burning bush. Taken from Exodus 3, it says, The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. Who will do it? I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the otherites. And up to this point, Moses is... He's into this. This is great. God's going to deliver his people. They're going to be delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians and given their own land. This is awesome news. And then verse 10 takes a turn for Moses. He says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses isn't having it. He's going to come up with an excuse. And he says, basically, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And notice what God says in verse 12. He said, but what? I will be with you. I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. And you have brought the people out of Egypt and you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses, he's got plenty of excuses. Smart guy. He's going to figure out a way out of this. And here he comes up with a hypothetical question for God. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That name, it's the first time that God gives his name in scripture here in Exodus 3. The word, the name actually means he who is indeed. In other words, God is saying he is the ultimate statement of being. He's the end all, be all of everything. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He's everything in between. He says, I started the thing. I will end the thing. And if they ask you who sent you, you tell them the great I am sent you to deliver you. 
So what does this mean big picture wise? In this moment in time, God uses a man who is living in fear to deliver his people from the clutches of slavery in Egypt. And God uses a moment in time when a nation was enslaved to another country to show us that maybe the most vivid Old Testament picture of the gospel. And in the same way that God empowered Moses to deliver the nation of Israel from Egypt, one day God would send the ultimate deliverer, the better Moses, his son, Jesus Christ, to liberate his people from the clutches of sin and death. So what made all of this possible? God shows up and he makes it happen. How many more Old Testament examples could we explore to discuss the presence of God? I don't honestly know, but there's a lot. Think about Joshua taking down Jericho and God says to him, be strong, be courageous in that moment. Think about David facing Goliath and the first time that David hears the taunt of the giant. And he asks the question, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that taunts the armies of the living God? When I was taking care of my dad's sheep and the lion or the bear would come up, God would deliver them into my hands and he will deliver this giant into my hands. Think Esther saving her people that she was told that maybe she was there at that point in time for such a time as this. Think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were thrown into a fire furnace because they would not compromise and bow down to an idol. And so King Nebuchadnezzar had the furnace heated seven times. He threw those three guys in, and when they looked in, there was a fourth in there with them. And the Bible says the fourth had the appearance as of a son of God. The Bible is showing us this constant and consistent message that God shows up in history, intervenes, and makes a way for his people to be saved. So let's back up for a moment and think through what the Bible is showing us. God's constant, consistent presence has to be a clue to its significance. There are so many examples in the Bible where the one true sovereign God shows up in history to act in those circumstances and that moment in time, and also that action becomes part of his plan to redeem mankind which is realized in the appearing of Jesus Christ. So what does all of this communicate about God's presence? God's presence communicates something about who he is, namely about his nature and his divine character. To see what I mean, let's think through what someone's presence means in our lives. When someone is consistently present in your life and they do so with good intentions, what does it communicate? I think it primarily communicates two things. One is they want to be involved. So this present conveys that there's this desire to be involved in another person's life. When someone is present, they are involved in a way that communicates a desire for your well-being. The second thing it communicates is a care or a concern. So if consistent presence conveys the desire to be involved in your life, then that involvement conveys a sense of care and concern also. So bottom line is this. God's presence conveys his undeniable love for mankind. And so let's see if the Bible has more to say about this. So we just established that God's presence is prevalent throughout the Bible. And this serves as a big clue to its significance. And if the Bible talks about something a lot, that means it's important. We should probably pay attention to it. We also noted that God's presence throughout the Bible conveys something about his character and his nature. Namely, that he wants to be involved in our lives, cares about us. And the only conclusion that can be drawn from that is that he loves us deeply. So let's take this a step further. All of this is clearly seen and that in the presence of God is both the goal and the means of redemption. And you say, what do you mean that God's presence is the goal of redemption? Well, I'm glad you asked, so let's take a look at Revelation 21. The first four verses say this, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is where? It's with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So this is clearly stating that God's end goal in redeeming mankind was to be with us. He promised to save us from our sins, and he was faithful to do just that in sending Jesus to die on the cross, be raised on the third day. And as certain as he delivered on the promise of his first appearing, he will also deliver on the promise in Revelation 21 at his second appearing. There will be a future day when Jesus will return a second time and set everything straight and usher in his eternal reign. And in that, we will be with him. Amen. So this shows us that God's presence is the goal of redemption. But God's presence was not only the goal of redemption, it was also the means of redemption. Jesus showed up and was present the first time to save us from our sins and, frankly, ourselves. And here's how John 1 would describe it, beginning in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world He was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. And it did what? It dwelt among us, was present with us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, meaning Jesus Christ, has made him known. God knows all things, and that means he knows us better than we know ourselves. And the reality of our human situation is that we need a lot of help. That, the kind of help we needed could only be provided by God. I think sometimes we forget that the reason that Jesus came to save us is because we needed saving. You know who needs saving? People who are in danger, and sometimes grave danger, and we are those people. Man, God's presence was not only the goal of redemption, it was also the means by which we were redeemed. And Jesus shows up to save his people in grave danger from their own sin. And he does this because he loves them, because they could never save themselves. Never, never, never. So God's presence communicates something about who we are in light of who he is. But you know what? There's always the people who believe this isn't true. They believe our situation couldn't be this bad. Our situation isn't that hopeless on our own. Surely, through a little determination, grit, and ingenuity, we can find a way out of this mess. While we may not verbally own that belief, we live like it. And so the way of living gives way to some false narratives. And here are a few that I think are pretty common. False narrative number one. We're good enough people to secure our own salvation. So this is a popular thought today. The reality is there are a lot of good people who make this claim. And the problem with this claim is that you can never be good enough on your own. But according to the Bible, goodness is not the standard by which God will judge us. 
Righteousness is the standard by which God will judge mankind. And on your own, you will never attain to the standard of being made holy or righteous in God's eyes. And on your own, standing on the weight of your own morality and good deeds, the Bible says that you've fallen short of the glory of God. So where does that leave us? In big, big trouble. This is one of the main reasons for Jesus first appearing, to save his people from their sins. And for those who place their faith in Christ, God will impart or give the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, to us. And in doing so, positionally, we can stand before God, not on the merit of our own righteousness, but on his righteousness. And this allows us to meet the standard of holiness required to have an eternal relationship with God. In short, God showed up, intervened on our behalf, makes a way for us to be saved, but you will never be able to save yourself. False narrative number two is this, is that we can fill the emptiness in our hearts with people and with stuff. The people who subscribe to this line of thought would never openly admit this as true about themselves, but they live this way. Their lives are oriented around people-pleasing and the acquisition of stuff in the hopes that it will fulfill the deepest longings of their hearts. What this reveals about us is that we have a worship problem. Rather than orienting our hearts around the Creator who loves us and sent His Son to die for us, we love the creation. Said another way, we don't love the King, we just love the King's stuff. And just to be clear, I'm not opposed to Christmas or gift giving and any such thing. This can be a fun and even a magical time of year where we get to express our love to family and friends in ways that aren't usually offered to us. Generosity has its own kind of special place and even its own special rewards. But there's often a fine line between generosity and idolatry. And if we pay close enough attention to our hearts, this time of year can point out how much we love the king and how much we love the king's things. The tragedy of this false narrative is that people are willing to mortgage their eternal souls on things and stuff that they would not even own in 10 years. And in doing so, they cling to good things and miss the better things that God has in store for them. And so in this moment, I'm going to need a little grace from you. And I want, to, I want to talk about something that's a little difficult. And this is another false narrative, the third one. It's the deception of pain. But this false narrative can be a little tricky. And here's why. Because there are many people who have been either the victim of some terrible things or sins committed against them by others or have been the victims of some kind of tragedy. There's horrible loss, confusion, and pain that comes with this. The confusion and loss can be directed at other people, at God himself, or a combination of both. Not only is the pain excruciating, but it is also very, very legitimate. There are very real reasons for the pain and loss. But here's the problem. Somewhere along the way, the pain and loss become the things that define the individual. And in the searing pain, there comes this emotion-driven perspective of life and truth. Emotions can be a good, God-given gift that furthers our enjoyment of God and others, but there's a flip side to emotions as well. Emotions can lead us to believe our perspective of the truth about our painful situation is actually truth. I'm going to say that again. Emotions can lead us to believe that our perspective of the truth and about our painful situation is actually the truth. As an example of this, consider a painful episode in C.S. Lewis's life. C.S. Lewis is the great author, Christian apologist. He married late in life. He had corresponded by letter and had the opportunity to get to know a lady named Joy Davidman Gresham. And after a time of friendship, they married in 1956. 
She was also a writer, and there were some other similarities to their background. They were both atheists before coming to faith in Christ. They enjoyed the marriage. They enjoyed each other's company immensely. And then tragedy struck earlier in their marriage. Two years into their marriage, Joy was diagnosed with bone cancer. And two years after she was, her diagnosis, she died in 1960. Lewis journaled his experience with grief following his wife's death and published the journal into a book called A Grief Observed under the pseudonym of a guy named N.W. Clerk. He published the book under a pseudonym because he didn't want people to associate the book with him or its very personal raw take on grief. Kind of in a sense of irony and almost humor, his close friends would buy Clark's book and recommend it to Lewis as they watched him struggle with his grief, but it was only after his death was it made public that he had actually written the book. And so to show you the raw nature of his grief, here's an excerpt from the book that I want to read to you. It says this, when you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcome with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. Emotion fuels the perceived reality caused by my pain. While the pain may be very legitimate, the view that comes with it cannot always be trusted. Take C.S. Lewis, for example. Is that quote from a grief observed true? Is it true? When our need is desperate, does God slam a door in our face, bolt it and double bolt it and then ignore us? Is that true? Is that what really happens? See, I don't doubt that C.S. Lewis felt like God had abandoned him and even ignored him in a time of tremendous pain and loss. But my question is not, is that how C.S. Lewis really feels? My question is, is that true? And here's where we need to anchor our soul, even when we don't feel like it in the word of God, because the Bible speaks truth. And maybe for some here today, that is a reminder that you need. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells us that all authority has been given to him. How much of it? All of it. Meaning, who does he answer to? No one. So what he's about to say comes from the highest authority. And then he gives us our marching orders. And he says, as you're going, go into all nations, making disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe or to obey all that I've commanded you. And then he reminds us of something extremely important. And behold, I am with you. How often? Always. I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. Jesus said this knowing full well that making disciples of all nations is costly. And by costly, I mean potentially painful for the one being sent out to make disciples. Meaning that suffering and thus pain would be part of the believer's experience. Meaning that Jesus might ask us literally to walk through hell and back and following him. And even if Jesus requires this of us, he also promises us what? That he would never leave us. And if he asks us to walk through tremendous suffering, he promises, promises, promises that he would be with us every step of the way. In order to access hope, we have to hold on to promise. 
While C.S. Lewis may have felt abandoned by God, that wasn't the reality of his situation. Maybe there's someone listening today that needed to be reminded of that truth. And even in the midst of this time of year, even in the midst of your pain, I promise you, God is present. He is there and he will never leave you. So back to the original question in the sermon. Why was, God's, why was the promise of God's presence, his being Emmanuel, so significant, so important? We've looked in scripture to see that God's presence tells us something significant about him. Namely, his character and divine nature is loving. It also tells us something significant about us, namely that we need him in the worst way. So what we're about to find out in Galatians 4 is the Bible also tells us something significant about the way he chooses to relate to us in light of those two things. As we read Galatians 4 once again, it says this, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. There are four things I want to highlight about this passage quickly. Number one is the fact that we were slaves to the elementary principles and principalities of this world tells us everything we need to know about our our ability to fix what's wrong with us. We can't do it. Number two. In the fullness of time, meaning that when after we had sinned, God sent out his mission to redeem us and to save us, meaning it happened at the perfect time, the God-ordained time, the exact right time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son in his first appearing, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? Because we were born under the law. And what did the law do for us? It reminded us of where we had gone wrong. It pointed out where we had sinned, but it couldn't fix us. And so he did that for us to redeem those who were under the law. The third thing that I want to point out about this is here's the end result of all this. We get adopted as children of the king. The striking reality that God had in mind to make us family, it's mind-blowing. The fact that he had us that he had in mind to make us his children is incomprehensible to me. You ever stopped and thought about that, what that really means? Lest you think this is some formality where God is saying to us, now that I've saved you totally and completely, go away. Leave me alone because you've caused me enough trouble and I've done more for you than can ever be expected. That's not the direction God goes. In fact, he goes all in the opposite direction. And this is what he says, because you are children of the king, sons and daughters of the most high, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. It's an intimate term between fathers and children that's closest translation in English means something close to daddy, daddy. In other words, God has initiated the way for us to be redeemed through his presence so that we might know God fully and intimately. It means that in those moments when we run to God with our irrational fears about monsters being under the bed and we place our cold feet on him, he is not put off by that, but in fact welcomes it. 
And the fourth thing, just when you thought there couldn't be more, Paul drops this little truth bomb. The two realities that we've already been discussed, that we're no longer slaves, but now we're children of the king. But God not only has a kingdom that he's established by the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ, for all eternity, he plans to make you, his child, an heir of the whole thing. Sometimes I'm so blown away by the unblemished promises of God. I think sometimes we just read right past it. We never think about what the Bible is actually saying. Listen, this is what it's saying. You're not a servant or a slave. You're family. And listen to me. You're not just family. It's not like you're some third cousin removed by marriage related to your uncle's fourth dog or whatever. You're a child of the king. You are a son or a daughter. And you're not just a child of the king. You're a joint heir with Jesus himself. God is establishing an eternal kingdom to be with us so that we can give us the whole thing to us. And yeah, that's basically what he's promised us in his presence. His presence at the first advent was, if you will, pushing the chips all in on his plan to redeem us so that he could be present with us for all of eternity. So in order to access hope, we have to hold on to promise. So why is Emmanuel so important? Why did God promise us his presence? And why is that so significant? In doing so, it establishes three things. One is, his presence conveys something true about who he is. Namely, that it is his nature and character to love us. The second thing is it also conveys something true about us. Namely, that we're a wreck. Unable to save ourselves. Unable to fix the relationship with God on our own and in serious, serious need of being saved. And it also conveys something about the nature of the way that he pursues us. He didn't pursue us so that he could merely keep us around for eternity. His plans included making us family, children, and even joint heirs with Jesus Christ himself. And praise be to God for all of that. Praise be to God that he's promised us that, and those things are realities. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for the beauty and the truth of what you've promised us in Scripture. I thank you for all the things that you've made clear to us. And as I think through everything that goes on in this season, I think about the joy and the hope that comes with the realization that you've come here already in the past, that you went to the cross for us, that you rose from the grave for us, that you have made a way for us to be right with God. I think about all the hope and joy that comes with those things, those realities, the things that you've already accomplished. But I also know that this world is tough and it leaves scars and it leaves marks and people are in pain and people are hurting, especially this time of year. And I pray that rather than turn to the pain, I pray that they would turn to you. I pray that they would be reminded that you are real and that you are here. And that in this moment that we could be reminded that we get to press into who you are and what you've already accomplished for us. Thank you so much for that. God, in this moment, if there are people here that are struggling with their pain, if there are people here that are caught and they're in the grasp and the clutches of sin, I pray that you would save them from that. I pray that you would do in the midst of us what only you could do. We thank you for that, and we pray this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.